Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But he's our special guest, singer, songwriter, author, and podcaster, Sid Griffin. Every nerve in my body is so naked and numb, I can't even remember what it was I came here to get away from. Don't even hear the murmur of a prayer. It's not dark yet, but it's getting there. Sid, thanks. <laughs> we asked you to choose uh, a few uh, choice Dylan lines. Any particular resonance with you, those lines? Uh, when that album came out, Time Out of Mind, I actually didn't like it that much. I liked bits of it. And it's grown on me, and it's uh, quite an old album now. We think of it as a, it's a, a new album, but it's yeah. not a new album of Bob's. It's decades old. And it's one of those albums that the, the more you listen to it, the more it unfolds, at the risk of sounding like a, an aging rock critic, which I was at one time. <laughs> and uh, an accountant friend of mine, who was then and is now... 15 years older than me said that song really had resonance with him resonated with him and i remember asking him his age and he was about uh, 57 at the time mm-hmm. and i thought I, oh i could see how a song about mortality where you're getting older and the, the bones ache and everything works but there's a bit of snap crackle and pop when you go about your business walking down the street doing mm-hmm. your job and of course now you gentlemen don't know, and your listeners don't know, but I will confess, I'm older now than that accountant was then when he said he was 57. And uh, now, not not dark yet, which I thought was a good song when I did hear the album the first time. It's one of the tracks I did like straight away. Mm. Now that song really has a punch and comes home. And uh, I can only imagine what it means for Dylan after his health scares and and the situations he's he's been in. He's uh, going on to 77, something like that. Mm. So... Uh, I think Bob. I've looked him up on on YouTube, the world's greatest copyright infringement, and seen <laughs> clips of him singing it in concert in the present day, and uh, it must really resonate with the author, because of course it is getting very late in the day for Dylan. You know, Charles Aznavour died today, and a few days ago, a hero of mine, Otis Rush, a Chicago blues guitar player, and a great a great songwriter himself, Otis Rush. I bet Bob Dylan loves Otis Rush. He he, he died. So this, this generation of Dylan and his people are, are, are going. So Nart Darkett is really, carries a real weight to it. That uh, Yeah. Someone said to me the other day, um, in fact, it was on this podcast, um, but they were talking about it being more optimistic than I'd ever perceived it. For me, it's all about the fact that it's getting there. Whereas he yeah. was saying, the fact is, it's not dark yet. Um, and, I, and it never occurred to me that it could be seen optimistically, because to me, it sounds like the inevitable. I, I have to agree with you. I don't know that I would agree with your guest saying that it sounds optimistic. Uh, he sounds glad to be alive. I mean... Mm. Uh, for a guy who's discussed God in his interviews and in his work as much as any rock star, with the possible exception of the late George Harrison, I don't think Dylan at all has the George Harrison. George Harrison expressed many times that this is just a stage of life and death is another stage of life. Ooh. I remember George Harrison saying, not to me personally, but in an interview, George Harrison said, we're getting out of... Imagine getting out of one car and getting into a different kind of car. That's the life <laughs> and death. And I think Dylan's, quite frankly, more like yours truly, Sid Griffin, who doesn't want to die, doesn't want to go, wants to be here, wants to enjoy a, a, a vanilla malted or a Guinness or a or Coca-Cola on a hot day or his 
kid's laughter, a well-tuned guitar. I think Dylan's more like me. I don't think he's ready to get in the next vehicle yet. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I've just been doing a, a Leonard Cohen sort of weekend, and mm. Leonard Cohen was, was of the George Harrison camp as well, mm. and there was lots of these songs. It, it was a sort of a Leonard yes. Cohen tribute concert, and they were all about crossing over, and you're already dead anyway in another mm. alternative reality, so death is only a crossing over. But I agree. I mean, Dylan is, is so much of this world. I sometimes wonder about it because he must have read all the books. He's he's you know he knows he's had access to the same gurus as those guys, mm. but he's never bought into it. I think he did did that did that song about what was it called? Uh, Get another guru. The thing that he did with George Harris. Oh, working yeah. on a guru. Working on a guru. And that was yeah, a great right. piss take of the whole thing, wasn't mm. it? Yeah. I, I, yeah. I think I think you're right, and I mean I'm sort of agreeing with myself when I say I agree with you. But I think, and your listeners might find this interesting to note. Uh, as hard as it is to believe, and no, I've never met Bob Dylan, but I've met the immediate circle around him and worked in the Dylan office in New York uh, for weeks on end. And uh, and I have uninsight into Bob Dylan. I don't know that it's correct or proper or the only one you should have, but I have mm. uninsight into Dylan. And my insight into Dylan is, curiously enough, interestingly enough, I think he's a surprisingly normal person in an incredibly abnormal situation being he's the Cervantes or the Shakespeare of his day mm. but you, you, he, I, I, well, I don't know if he's, well, I, I will confess I guess this isn't world beating news but I know for a fact he's gone to get the grandkids at, at primary school which is a perfectly normal thing for a grandfather to do uh, and here's this he may hate me for saying the next two things I know for a fact he's been at New York Islander games because friends of mine had seen him there you know <laughs> in his hoodie uh, yeah and I know for a fact he's been at Minnesota Timberwolves NBA basketball games back in his native state of Minnesota because friends of mine have seen him. And the whole, you know, the the people around clock it. He goes mm. with his brother or whomever, apparently. Mm. And they don't bother him mm. because, mm. you know, they think he's made this great contribution. And he's frequently wearing shades at like an indoor basketball <laughs> game or whatever. Yeah. So, but what I, my point is, my point is he, he, people say he's abnormal and he's old, weird Bob and all that. I think it's because... The situation he's in, I think he's a surprisingly normal person, which goes back to what we're saying about he doesn't want to die. He wants to go to an NBA basketball game. He would like mm. a Guinness or whatever his tipple of choice is on, on a given evening. He would like to write another song, mm. uh, so on and so forth. In the trajectory of his career, can you point to a point, and I know that you've written extensively about the basement tape, so I guess I'm guiding it in that direction, but sure. is, there, is there a point around then when you see a switch from a man who was you know, burning yes. hard and fast and then decided he wanted to be around for the kids and the dog on the floor? And, and... The, no one knows the exact date, but we know that sometime after the motorcycle accident, he's talked about being in his uh, garden, his backyard, as we'd say in America, in Woodstock, Birdcliff. And he looking up at the sky and thinking, I'm being ripped off. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Mm -hmm. This isn't really the way it wants I, my life should be going. Whenever that was, and it's just, who knows what day it was, I think that's when he started realizing, I can control my own life. Uh, he was the sort of 60s Elvis figure forward slash Shakespeare. And he held a certain cultural weight that nobody else held, not even John Lennon. And yet um, part of him wanted to be a normal guy. And I think when he cut his hair off, and this is just conjecture on my part, but I think when he cut his hair off and he looks surprisingly normal and he's doing John Leslie Harding and Skyline and uh, 
uh, self-portrait. Look at those photographs of him bopping around Woodstock, which, yeah. of course, is now completely different if yeah. you've been to Woodstock lately, yeah. Woodstock, New York. He's got, he looks like a normal guy going to get the bread at the bakery and so on and so forth. He looks surprisingly normal. And there's those shots of, uh, I think it's, what's the guy's name? Is it Elliot Landy? That yep, yeah. He's taking photographs of Dylan standing on a street corner in, in, in uh, Woodstock talking to a couple who just, hey, Bob, how you mm-hmm. doing? You know, and they just look like anybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't particularly look like revolutionaries. They don't look like Che Guevara's. They don't look like uh, uh, people on the musical cutting edge of the 60s. They look surprisingly normal. And that is one of my takes of, of Dylan. He, he's, he's a surprisingly normal guy in a hell of an abnormal situation, doing the best that he can. Wait, how normal, though, do you imagine... He ever really was, because I have this this right. picture of Bob Dylan, you know, getting bar mitzvahed, but being this stroppy little genius kid. I mean, I, you know, he is a kind of a genius. He's he's a yes, person who who sees things in a different way that the non genius people do. So, you know, I don't know. Was he ever normal? I imagine he was an incredible handful all through his life. So I sometimes get the feeling I'm not disagreeing with you, but I I, I, I there's a part of me that thinks that he thinks this is what normal is. So that must be what it's all about. Build me a cabin in Utah. You know, mm-hmm. this is how normal people behave. I'm but not can sh- he be ever be normal? Is, is I, I yeah, see that's that. my I question. Mean, I, yeah. I, when I, I lived in L.A. 15 years before I moved over to, uh, to, to London. And um, in L.A., I met a number of Brian Wilson's uh, high school chums and, and indeed neighbors. And they said um, Brian Wilson... While he lived a normal life, if you will, was never really a normal person. Was always sort of a bit anxious, a bit, a bit of anxiety there, a bit wanting acceptance. And I think that's true of Bob Dylan. But again, conjecture. But we can also say that's true of a lot of people, a lot mm. of people. Mm. And when you have these incredible talents, I mean, John Lennon sort of embraced stardom and bought a big mansion in Tittenhurst. And, you know, the Dakota stuff, he really embraced stardom. He jolly well knew he was John Lennon and, and didn't really shy away from it that much. Yes, he wanted privacy. And, and, and Brian Wilson, with his awkwardness in, in, in stardom, he's, I noticed he's never, one would never really say John Lennon or Brian Wilson, for whatever their personal lives or politics, are really men of the people. But Dylan has is a bit of a man of the people thing. Mm. Witness one of my favorite stories about Dylan. Um, he he was offered he he sold out that Dublin uh, Stadium or whatever that big place is where they play uh, uh, outdoor yeah. arena in Dublin, yeah. and uh, they Sony CBS Sony Ireland wanted to throw him a party, and he was they were informed he he probably it's not really his thing to go to a party and get an award or anything. Yeah, no, it's not really those. his thing. Is that what we're going to do? We love Bob. I got okay, fine. <laughs> so they do it. A friend of mine's a, a DJ over there that probably doesn't want to be quoted. He was invited to the party. He says, Bob's not going to come. And they were all excited and they were kind of let down Dillman there. So my Irish DJ friend leaves and he lives on the far side of town in the suburbs because he's done well in life. So he's left the sports arena, left the party where Dylan didn't show. And he's on the far side of Dublin at the last bus stop before you're out of the suburbs and into the countryside where my friend lives, there was construction going on. So he stops at the light. It's now it's long, one of the longest days of the year. It's you know late June or what have you. And he looks over to the right. And at the bus stop, there's Bob Dylan all by himself talking with an old Irish lady, just having a wonderful chat around midnight or a little past midnight. And, he's, and he put, my friend takes the window down 
And Bob's saying, are you sure you're all right? And all this other stuff. She's like, are you sure? All right? Where are you going? This is after this. It's, you know, a village like four miles. <laughs> God knows where Dylan's going by himself because he's headed out. He's not headed back into central Dublin. But my point of that pretty f- funny story is he doesn't, he just wants to be a normal guy and chat to a lady at a bus stop. Mm. And that's, okay. that's something I think a lot of his friends uh, and myself glide past because he's such a brilliant songwriter and, and such a prolific one save a few instances of his career i mean the basement tapes is the most prolific year of his career which yeah. i pointed out in my book million dollar bash get a mm. copy yes, very yes. very good it's I, on the I, website I've read it lots and lots of times um yeah no i think you're absolutely right i think he does he he does crave normality who wouldn't you know who who wouldn't after the well, war as you say life. i mean john john lennon you know wanted to be left alone but he was a he was a, yes. a proper rock star so it is uh, it's kind of the weird thing to do in a way because he mm. always takes seems to me the sort of weird choice and to reject stardom for somebody who's stri- he was strived you know we know how ambitious he was back in greenwich village he oh, really yes. oh yes wanted to be, so. wanted to be a hit and then as soon as pretty much as soon as he got it, changed the whole terms of it, mm. and then eventually did reject it, and has been rejecting it ever since. And I, I think it's it's actually what I'd say when he, he's surprisingly normal in that circumstance, because you were kind enough to introduce me, as, and quite rightly, as a, as a musician, as well as a writer uh, at the top of the show. And I, of course, would like to be a more successful musician and writer and, and be faded and all those other things and get accolades. But there is a point I wouldn't want to be Bob Dylan. That that kind of fame, we can't walk down the street and you know. I will say one thing about the Dylan office. You know, under under pain of torture, I'll never tell you where it is, mm. because it's that kind of place. You know, it's they in the Abernathy Building. <laughs> Everybody knows that. They, yeah. they don't. They don't need people coming in. And goes Bob here. Yeah. <laughs> He's God. I mean, they just don't need it. And I and I. So it's like, I mean, I I have this theory that there's a lot of people out there that that do what they do and at that level and they could be more famous and, and they don't want to go any further because they see what's happened to say Bob Dylan, John Lennon, Brian Wilson. Why would you want that level of fame? Now Dylan, his talent really has been the magnet that's brought him that that fame. I mean, you know, Dylan's not going to be in any strictly come dancing saying, look at me, look at me, I'm a celebrity in another field, look at me. Mm. Dylan's sheer undeniable talent has brought him his his fame. I mean, he hasn't... Uh, oh, you know that uh, out at Coachella, they had that marvelous... Uh, they called it uh, Old Fella Festival, where it was Pink Floyd, Neil Young, oh, yeah. Bob Dylan, that, yeah. The Who, uh, The Rolling Stones, and I'm missing... Brinkhart McCartney, they had six acts. And they're all, if you will, old people. So what was interesting... Sorry, what was, that, what that was, was interesting about that... Too is uh, when the Stones and everyone else went to see Dylan play. Think about this. Yeah. The Stones play and there's fireworks and there's all this stuff that goes on. And Pink Floyd, uh, or was it Roger Waters? I don't know. One of those manifestations of the Floyd played. Um, the Who played and there's the laser beam thing and won't get fooled again. All this pyrotechnics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when Dylan played, Keith Richards famously nudged what he thought was Mick Jagger and got an LA, uh, I think it was an LA Times reporter, and said, look at this, Mick. There's hardly any production. He's relying, incredulously saying, he's relying only on his songs. And I think that's a great point that Mr. Mm-hmm. Richards made. Um, Dylan plays and it's it's more or less black and white lights and some tinted magentas or, or you know, he doesn't rely on fireworks. There's no kiss element of the band KISS, folks. Mm-hmm. There's no kiss element of uh, 
tongues coming out of the stage or laser beams being shown into the audience or any of that kind of monkey business. Mm. Dylan goes on stage and performs music, and it's a literally, in some instances, a monochromatic show, black and white, black and white, black and white. Mm. And uh, think about that. Yet he's in the same league as McCartney and uh, The Who and The mm. Rolling Stones, blah, 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 who do embrace... And successfully so, because I've yeah. seen the McCartney yeah. show. They, they, he has great uh, a light show that, that enhances his show. Mm. It's great. But Dylan doesn't do that. No, Think but about that. He's got the lyrics, yes. doesn't he? I mean, he's, you have to listen to what he says. He's solely relying on art. Yeah. You know, there's no, he doesn't need a picture frame that's, that's highly polished gold to make the, the landscape that he's painted, if you'll allow me to say this terrible metaphor, look any better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know how he went down at that festival? You know, having to follow. Did I, he follow the? My who? friends. I don't. I don't remember. There was two, two famous people a night, and uh, I don't remember. My friend said he was terrific. Yeah. So he was just they appreciate terrific. It. And also, I think it was because it was it, it, a lot of his age group was there, and he felt that I'm singing to uh, my my generation and people that <laughs> may not be seeing me next year. Mm-hmm. And I think there was there was an, well, my friends said there was an element of they felt tenderness there and, and empathy because this has been our guy for fifty five years and uh, you know we we may not be here next year he may mm-hmm. not be here next year and uh, as you said we introduced you as a musician and you're a great bluegrass musician and uh, how do you rate Dylan through the years musically as a guitar player as uh, as a the music side rather than the Un- lyrics. Undisciplined, but he's really good when he puts his mind to it. He's, uh, that's his finger picking on Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. And there, other than mm-hmm. one point where he speeds up, it's just slightly speeds up, folks. He doesn't, you know, he, he's just terrific. He's he's played some beautiful things. Uh, a friend of mine was saying, oh, I can't stay, for instance, his harmonica work. It's the tambourine man that's on, I believe, live in 66. Well, there's mm-hmm. a number of harmonica solos that are great, but mm-hmm. I think it's, as I recall, it's the tambourine man that's on... Live 66, which you thought was the Royal Albert Hall and proved to be in Manchester, where he takes a lengthy harmonica solo that's mm-hmm. beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. And yeah. it's not sampled and edited, which you can do today. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. is live in that, uh, what's the Free Trade Hall? Is that what it's called? Yeah. Yep. And it's fantastic. Um, he, he, his, his lead playing slightly undisciplined, but some of the things he's picked on the guitar are just absolutely gorgeous. And the other thing is, some folks, as speaking of him as a musician, Say he can't sing, and he, he he like his friend Bob Newerth. They have a, uh, and I know Newerth fairly well. They have this thing about it's art in the moment, whatever it is, it is. So they don't go in and tart things back up and yeah. polish and do all that like a beetle would. Mm. They just do it for the moment, and it comes from their experience as painters. Both gentlemen as yeah. painters, <laughs> believe me. This is one thing I, Sid Griffin, can give you. It's a fact. They they relate to music as painters relate to paint. I can mm. tell you that now. And so Dylan. He hasn't taken care of his voice. Bob does not go Bob like I know him on a first name basis. Dylan does not. He's not backstage like the Mamas and the Papas or the Beach Boys or the Bangles, friends of mine. Thank you. Names to drop. Pop. That go Bob. Me me mama me me mama. Bob just goes on stage and sings. So he's a brilliant singer. He hasn't taken care of his voice, but he's a brilliant singer like Willie Nelson and Sinatra. And I mean that like Willie Nelson and Sinatra. So he he, he is a great musician. Um, He's not a disciplined one, but then Ringo doesn't practice the drums at home, which is why some of Ringo's performances, he comes back and does the next day. He's, he doesn't practice. He admits he doesn't practice. George Harrison said Ringo never practiced. But then again, he gave us the amazing drums on things like Here Comes the Sun and Ticket to Ride, mm-hmm. which try and play it if you don't think Ringo can, can drum. So I'm actually a, a pretty 
vociferous vocal out there fan of Dylan as a musician. Mm. Mm. Good. I'm interested to hear you mention the painting as well because correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't wait before Blood on the Tracks he took painting lessons with a painter called Norman yeah. Rayburn, was it? Yeah, in New York. And, and they and they talked about you know, seeing the whole painting from, from different angles simultaneously. And he started, that started to feed into his songwriting and he thought about writing in sort of, you know, mixed narratives. And the, the example everyone always holds up is Tangled Up in Blue, you know. It's right, which slips person, in and out of different person. tenses and mm. all that stuff. But I, mean, I was listening to that last week. Time so, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was listening last week to Simple Twist of Fate and I'd never noticed it was in there. They sat together in the park. They did this. They did that. A little confused. I remember well. Yeah. And it's just that little bit of the first person that he slips in there and says... Maybe this was me, maybe it wasn't, but you'll never know. And it's, it is that painting idea of looking at the perspective from, from multiple angles. It was mm. fascinating. I've heard that song hundreds of times. I'd never noticed it before. Also, as a friend of mine, and I quite agree. I have nothing to say other than I agree. But as a friend of mine was pointing out, you know, uh, Miles Davis is known in the jazz world for being Miles Davis. But why? Because he has five completely separate that almost aren't that related musical periods where he's playing this kind of music and his appearance just coincidentally enough i suppose reflects it to it he comes out he's sort of a clifford brown uh charlie parker disciple don't you don't need to look those names up these are you know great great horn players and he's wearing a smart mohair suit skinny tie you know button down white shirt and by the end, he's wearing this sort of earth, wind, and fire suit, or the kind of suit that Presley wore on, right. when he was Fat Elvis. Sorry, right. Elvis. And I was thinking about that, and I thought, well, so's Dylan. Dylan's like a painter, like Miles Davis. He's gone through his Cubist period. He's gone through his Blue period, so on and so forth. Mm. You know, Dylan's a protest guy, and he looks kind of like a sharecropper. And Dylan's a, a rock god in the mid-'60s, and he's got the Chelsea boots, the tight jeans. By the way, there were no black Levi's in the '60s. I don't know if you guys know that. No. You had to buy the white Levi's and dye them. They're, they did not make black <laughs> Levi's in the 60s. You had to buy white Levi's, which were very popular. And that's what the Jefferson Airplane and the uh, Velvet Underground everyone did. You bought the white ones and put in two boxes of Ritz dye. And <laughs> so this whole this return to kind of the, the, kind of, uh, the, the rustic lifestyle, maybe it was just he got bored of dyeing his jeans. Possibly dyeing his jeans. Some blue trousers for, for a and, 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 and so Dylan, but I mean, Dylan's like that. Look, look at his appearance now. I mean, it's, it's these, these uh, in my opinion, these very witty hats. He's having a bit of a giggle. And the... Uh, the pencil thin mustache, like he's a yeah. 1937 MGM yeah. contracted actor. Yeah, yeah. he's With having a Raymond like, Navarro, yeah, like yeah. Raymond Navarro. Yeah, he's yeah. like he's having a giggle. And I, I think, well, there's Bob. He's, he's like Miles Davis, or he's like uh, he's like Picasso. And I, I say that without blushing. He's got his his periods as an artist, where he's a gypsy, and now he's back to being a farmer, and now he's back to being this this sage on the on on the bringing us down the Sermon on the Mount or whatever it is. He's, Do you think he just likes blowing people's minds? Yes. Yeah, because when I say, for instance, just a mustache on the cover of Love yeah. and Theft, I thought. What the? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it just, it was another. You think, how many ways can he blow your mind? And, and you, you think that, that he just likes to explode things. He, you know, his uncle owned those two movie theaters, so he got to see movies for free in the cold hibbing winters. So he's a huge fan of black mm. and white old Hollywood films. And I'm thinking, I'm, he, I'm th- this is a guess, but I'm thinking he guesses I'm Bob Dylan. I love those old, I'll have one. And who else would do that? Who else would do that? And uh, he, a friend of, uh, oh, Stephen McCarthy was in the long runners with him. What was this? Jimmy somebody ran a uh, clothing store in Hollywood. And he and his wife got a call one day from Dylan on the road. They, they'd made him clothes. And there, there was, Dylan's in the early days of the never-ending tour, 
or actually, yeah, it was even before then. Sort of in the wilderness when his 80s records weren't that hot. Anyway, the point of the story is he called he called Jimmy and said, it's Bob, I'm out on the road, I'm going to wear something, something. Do you know the coats worn by uh, Rory Storm and the Hurricanes? And of course, Jimmy goes, well, I know the name, do the Beatles, because yeah, I think yeah. Ringo was the drummer. Was the that's, that, that's, that's it, right. that's it. That's right. and, but this is the internet. Now you can just go Rory Storm and the Hurricanes mm. and find the coats. And he goes, well, they're like Edwardian drainpipe things. Yeah, They've like got teddy this boy thing, trim yeah. at the top, blah, blah, blah. You know, the English call it teddy boy. And he says, that's what I want. Make me something like that. And so in those pre-internet days, Jimmy had to go figure out what Dylan meant. And then he made him that kind of coat. But that kind of visual reference is so out there and so weird. Who who else would have a pencil-thin mustache and a crazy-ass cowboy Stetson that, that you've never seen that kind of thing before? And who else would think, Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, now there's a look that we've got to revive. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. What goes around comes around. Yeah. I mean, who can even... I mean, I bet you said McCartney or Ringo's alive and he was in the band. Remember those jackets and Rory Storm and the Hurricanes? I bet Ringo would have to think about it. Like, well, like, which one? I remember. When you were talking about the painting. This is just off the wall, though. What do you make of, say, the cover of Big Pink? You know, or, I, I, or any of those things, self-portrait. I think that, um, as I told his manager one day, I saw the originals, and the, the paint on them is faded a bit, so they're not as vibrant as the album covers. Uh, but I, I told the manager, I said, uh, he was described in Rolling Stone as a non, non-Rembrandt painter. Early on, he was. But when you're sort of Bob Dylan, you can, you know, do whatever. Um, his painting now, I went to the exhibits, uh, I've been to two of the exhibits, one here in England, one in Germany mm-hmm. of all places. Mm-hmm. And his paintings now, whether or not he's borrowed from other artists, I don't, or photographers too, I don't know, I don't care. I mean, that's what art is. I mean, Charles Seeger, Pete Seeger's father said, all art is based on plagiarism. And unless you take it too far, there's there's an element of truth in that. So I think his early paintings were, he's Bob Dylan, let him do what he does. I don't think those are either, I don't think the band album cover or self-portrait are great art. Now, I I was fascinated the second time I went to uh, whatever the exhibition was called. It had some sort of... uh, Yeah, it had a fancy name. I I, I went to the one in London. And and I thought he's really learned to paint. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is really good stuff. He's now a painter that can really, really paint. You know. Some of them have a, an alarming similarity to stills from films. There's somebody online who's gone through these, and you look at them, and you think, "Oh, okay, that's that is." That's, well, that makes know. sense. Yeah, that yeah, makes yeah. perfect sense to me because he's such a big, big movie fan. I, yeah. I didn't know that, but no. I mean. and, and let's let's go back to the, the movie thing because the the movie dialogue crops up in some of his yes. films, in, in, his, in his songs. Like, I mean, for a, a lot on Empire Burlesque, which someone noticed at the time. But I heard a rumor, and I don't know if this is true, but I wonder if you've heard it, that he, he picks these things up, and he, whether he makes a mental note of them or he writes them down, he's got little snatches of, of, of film dialogue and uh, phrases in a box. And somebody, I hope I'm not saying anything legally dubious here, but somebody once said to him, um, you know, how did you write that song? Or did you write that song? And he said, oh, yeah, the box wrote that one. Well, that, that may well be true. I, I know from speaking to Peter Yarrow and people that saw him write songs in the 60s. He was one of those few guys that could sit down in 63, 64 and literally write a song. Yeah, on his you know, typewriter. Yeah, on his typewriter. And he'd go, and you know, he'd need a melody or might have a melody in his head. So, But I, I think later on, maybe that well ran dry and he now has the box writing songs. Mm-hmm. But I mean, 
if you take two lines from a Henry Timrod poem in the American Civil War mm. and then have a line of your own and then you have two lines from some Japanese poet of the 19th century and a line of your own and then a line of dialogue that Humphrey Bogart said to Claude Rains, yeah. well, I'm afraid that is an original song. Oh, yeah. Of I course. Mean, that's you know, what Shakespeare, it's an original song. Shakespeare did in, in his way, too. Uh, well, yes, I know. That's the, that's the yeah, big yeah. one, the debate about Shakespeare's uh, uh, wonderful plays and... Uh, did he write them? Yeah, yes, of course he wrote them. But whether it was his sister or or, or students or, or or rivals that he's you know got an idea from, it's it's Shakespeare. But I'm I sorry. also can't resist the notion that the one play that Shakespeare wrote, which was an original story, happens to share an album title with Bob Dylan. T- give or take the the is Tempest. Oh yes, of course, you know, which, right. I, which I find very very interesting. All of his other plays are. You know, versions of folk tales, well, Nick from Chaucer or whatever. When Tempest came out, like the, the Basement tapes, you know, Tempest has songs that, uh, there was one song that is a Billy Boy Arnold song, the one with Los Lobos planned. Is it Early Roman Kings? Yeah. Right. It is a Billy Boy Arnold song. But it's someone saying, well, you know, blah, 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 blah. That's, that's getting floating close to formal plagiarism. In popular music... There's a zillion songs that are the C, A minor, F, G, 1950s mm. uh chord pattern uh, there are a zillion songs that are sort of the chuck berry pattern i mean is chuck berry going to sue himself little richard has a zillion songs that are they're very very close yeah. to each other Bo so bo yeah. diddley's got a lot of songs that are very very similar to each other so i mean and then the blues idiom if you say who wrote sun's gonna shine in my back door one day that must be in nine ten twelve songs in my record collection right mm-hmm. so this whole idea of he, he, he did this, it's not really his. As Charles Seeger said, you know, p- plagiarism is basic to all art. It's basic to all culture. Yeah. It's funny that nobody, to my knowledge, has ever sued Dylan in the way that uh, there was that big, big Led Zeppelin spirit That's what suit. I spoke of, which has now been revived. Yeah. Has it? Oh, I didn't yeah, know that. Spirit, spirit of Appealed and they're going to be heard again, which I Holy think is completely God. bogus for what it's worth. And I like Spirit more than Led Zeppelin, but I'm afraid Led Zeppelin will win again. But why do you think if Bob has sailed so close to the wind, and he sailed in a way much closer than these people, it seems to me that people go, hey, you know, it's Bob, and we know how Bob rolls, and that's Well, he even, it. on Theme Time Radio Hour, when he played um, Ruler of My Heart by Irma Thomas, he even made a point of saying that Otis Redding did Pain in My Heart, and it was the same, and like, tut-tut, Otis, that was a bit naughty. <laughs> <laughs> really? You're going to go there? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree, and, they are, and he's right about Otis and, uh, and, um, and uh, Irma Thomas, but I think uh, in the field of, of, of popular music or p- field of popular art or popular letters... I mean, you do what you can. I, I, uh, I mean, Three as a Bird is the 50s song progression I just uh, named, except instead of C, A minor, F, G, it's C, A minor, F minor, G from the great John Lennon. I mean, these things are all based on something else. And, oh, which reminds me, something that uh, I can tell you as a musician, which you guys might know, but not all of your, your podcast listeners know. Dylan, uh, Keith Richards of the Stones, the late Gene Clark of the Birds, and I'm sure there's more, would all write songs and have written songs at times. And that's three pretty big names, but mm. there's probably more. By just picking up a guitar and just hitting some chords and seeing what comes out, or picking up a guitar and playing the chords of... Oh, Lennon did this too. I got a Beatle now. Lennon did this too for Plastic Ono Band. The outtakes of Plastic Ono Band, he, he's doing like 50 songs of Jerry Lee Lewis's and mm. Jerry Burns and all mm. that kind of mm. crowd. And they evolve into something. That's so, you right. know, and Gene did this, 
Dylan's done this, and Keith Richards admits he'll start playing a country western song by Hank Williams, and it evolves into uh, Wild Horses or whatever. Mm. So you know, pop pop music we're on awfully thin ice when you start talking about this was this and that was this. I mean, if yeah. you if you there's a brilliant line on the Larry Sandley, Gary Shandling show when, he's, when uh, Larry Sanders said, um, said uh, well, uh, he said to his producer, I don't even use the garden weasel. And the producer, played by Rip Torn, said, wait a minute, Larry. <laughs> you, start pu- you start pulling on that thread, you'll unravel our entire world. <laughs> and that's the truth. You start saying this in pop music is this and this is that. You're gonna, I mean, the whole world can sue each other. And but- I include the Beatles. Everyone's got something that's... Sales close to the wind of this or but that. But speaking of the Beatles, I mean, George Harrison was successfully sued, right? Yeah. I mean, I think I read that he, he he did sort of note for note steal She's So Fine, and, and he could have changed it. If he'd have changed, as Lennon said, if he'd have changed one or two notes, they'd have never gotten mm. it. But so what do you think possessed him to, you know, did he think I'm the great George Harrison, no one's ever going to sue me? Or I just honestly, think music is free, everything is free? I don't, that's a great question, because uh, I, I think part I think part of it, and this is just a guess again, I think part of it is people are in the bubble, and uh, in the way that politics are America, people say you're in the, 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 the democratic bubble or the, the Trump mm-hmm. bubble. Mm-hmm. And I think there's an element of that with popular music and with fame in general. I think power and fame really influences a lot of things, which goes back to what I was saying earlier, is Dylan... Dylan really isn't that interested in power and fame. Mm. He was interested in fame at one time, sure. and then he became famous. He realized he was a poised mm. chalice there. It's yeah, like, right. But he's not anymore. I mean, he's, he's got enough moolah and everything else. He's not... I've got to ask you one question about uh, the basement tapes, since sure, you course. are a noted authority on the basement tapes. This is, but this is a, a, the, the, the most minuscule question in the world. Um, what, were they in the basement? I think I read in, that you... You you said that it wasn't the basement at all. Well, you know, no, the most of the basement tapes in the basement, but they were they did go over to where uh, Rick Danko's place was and record there as well. And then there were some things that uh, were done uh, early on in uh, in New York in a in a room they briefly had. But the majority of it was literally that guy's basement in the uh, in the Woodstock area where I've now been a couple of times. And um, it's interesting because the the band always talked about there were several acres where they could sort of run around and. You know, they they played touch football, American touch football or or Canadian touch football, and uh, I <laughs> guess wander around, smoke pot, and they were alone. And of course, when I went there now, you couldn't do that. The, the houses they've sold off the land, right. so there's houses very very close to Big Pink. I mean, you, you couldn't say walk around naked in a marijuana stupor because the, the neighbors would see you. But um, no, no, most of it is in the basement. It is like Robertson said; it's the worst possible place one could could want to record a mm. record. I mean, I'm sure Garth, because he got some pretty damn good sound. I'm yeah. sure Garth, once he got his sea uh, legs and really knew how to record, another bad metaphor, he uh, put some rugs down and something on the wall because it is an absurd place to want to record a, 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 a de- even a demo. It's just yeah. a mm. silly ass thing. Convenient because you just go downstairs. Yeah, but not not but anything. Do, they sound great. I mean, I listen to that music. So many times in in the in well, bootleg form, in in released form, in and in official collapsed mono form, and uh, it sounds a lot better than than Myth would have it. I'd like something better on my tombstone, but you could put this: Here lies Sid Griffin, who, other than maybe Garth Hudson, has heard more of the basement tapes than anybody on this planet, and I include Dylan and Robbie Robertson because they weren't there at some of these things. Mm. So it's me down to me and Garth. I think that. Um, one of the unsung heroes of the there's two particular unsung heroes of the of this era of Dylan's the basement tapes is one Rick Danko, who he clearly loved singing with, not Richard Manuel, sorry, mm-hmm. 
Rick Danko, he clearly loves singing with Danko and having Danko do harmonies and so on and so forth. And then, of course, uh, uh, Garth Hudson. People always point about Robbie Robertson's influence, and that that that's apparent and obvious. He's a he's a he's a bit of a self promoter, Robbie Robertson. So am I. Hey, you know, sue me. But um, Garth is just one of those underrated guys in in in, in rock and roll. That uh, without Garth, you could say without anybody, the band would be different. Well, without Garth, the band would be radically mm. different. And mm. I think his. Uh, he, the the earliest tapes I heard of the, of the basement tapes on on the orange copy of the book, not the black covered one where I made some mistakes. On the orange covered one, I went through everything a second time, compared the few notes that there were uh, off the boxes, and I realized what had basically happened is Garth early on was an okay recording engineer, and about a third of the way through, he's terrific. Mm. He's terrific. Did he just move the mics, or I mean, what do you mean? What could you do with a well? It was a very primitive, primitive setup yeah. and a very primitive. Uh, there's pictures of the uh, of the recording uh, uh, that he used in the book, and he really learned to defeat the machinery. He learned to get out of the the most out of the limited equipment he was loaned by Peter Paul and Mary. It was most mm-hmm. of it was mm-hmm. their equipment because they were huge at the time. I don't know how big Peter Paul and Mary were. In, by 67 in this country, but in the States, they were huge and enjoying a second wind with more pop rock influence and less folk in their music. And uh, I think Garth would have been a, a, a tremendous asset for the first album and the uh, and the, uh, the the one they recorded in Sammy Davis Jr.'s uh, swimming pool uh, hut mm, yeah. in Beverly Hills, the, the, the one called The Band. I think Garth would have been an amazing... He learned on the job. Mm-hmm. And he didn't have any help from anybody. He, Robertson helped move some mics. I'm sure the older guys did. But he learned on the job, and there was mm-hmm. no engineer teaching him. Mm-hmm. But one could also say that's about Dylan. I mean, Dylan didn't come out of the box a great songwriter. He came out of the box with artistic sensibilities, but he didn't come out of Hibbing as a great songwriter. He mm-hmm. he learned on the job. So I'm afraid, guys, I've got to wrap it up. I know it's so much still to ask. Maybe about you know this is going to be a long running <laughs> thing. So maybe we'll have you back. As I feel well, like I'd sure started. love it. So, Sid Griffin, thank you. Thank you, guys. Wow. Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded in the Tibet Suite at VoiceOver Soho Studios. Engineered by Andy Voko and produced by Peter Morris. We're on Twitter at Is It Rolling Pod. Music is by Sam Hare. It's a wicked life, but what the hell? Everybody's got to eat. And I'm just the same as anyone else when it comes to scratching for my meat. 